Hey, I'm Allison Hare, and welcome to Little Left of Center, the podcast that interviews culture changers that are reshaping our world and breaking new ground. Episode number two. On today's episode, I sat down with Dara Brustein. Dara is a serial entrepreneur, author, and lifestyle designer based in Atlanta, Georgia. She has a collaborative video series with Deepak Chopra, and her work is featured in Time Magazine, Entrepreneurs, CNN, Forbes, Inc. Seriously, I don't have time to list all of her accolades. But what I am excited to share with you is that she is whip smart and has so many practical tips to help find and make a career of your dreams and get to know this fascinating lady who just keeps rising. Welcome to Little Left of Center. We have Dara Brustein. Dara, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us <laughs> tell us why you're here. Well, because we have a mutual friend. That's the real answer. <laughs> yeah, so Dara, just to give you guys some background, I have a friend named Rachel Hoffman who was helping me build this podcast and saw a post that Dara had posted on social media that she wanted to do 30 podcasts in 30 days. Like a crazy person. Like a crazy person. So... <laughs> Rachel immediately tagged me and I connected with Dara and we finally got a chance to sit down. And when I started doing some homework on who you are, I like my mind was just blown with, I don't know how, I don't know how you do it all. So if you wouldn't mind introducing your background, I'd love to, I'd love to hear it from you because uh, then you'll just hear me talk for the next 50 minutes of... (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll do. do my best to give the Cliff's Notes version, which is simply that after I studied some absurd things in college, which were religion and Italian, I graduated and did the next logical thing, which was go into the fashion industry. And after hitting a three-year sales goal in 10 months of a million dollars in my first company, I realized I wasn't challenged. It wasn't working for me. And then fortunately, in retrospect, unfortunately, at the time, I was laid off when the company went under, and that was about a week before Christmas. When I was 23 years old and had bought a house three months prior, only because I had a restraining order against my landlord. So like times were not great. (laughs) Things were not looking so great. So at that point, I thought, oh, shoot, I am a grown up now. I have a mortgage. I need to get a job. I don't know what I want to do. And that basically led me into the next couple of years where I was taking on all sorts of jobs and getting laid off and downsized pretty rapidly because this then was 2007 to 2009. So the economy is catapulting downward. And I am really scared at this point. Like, oh my gosh, I'm checking all the boxes. You know, I'm doing all the things people said I was supposed to do. And this isn't working. And so I did a bit of a reality check and realized the thing I had always wanted to do was to be a business owner. And from my childhood, I remember looking back and seeing times where I would do that by creating little jewelry businesses on the porch and selling them to my parents' friends and whatever else I would do to try and get something off the ground. And the word entrepreneur wasn't one that I had in my vernacular, but I just knew having a business was something that I was wired to do. And at that point, I was able to take and take all the voices of people around me saying, oh, you're just an entitled millennial, you're impatient, you're not waiting your turn, climb the ladder blah, blah, blah. And I realized, nope, that's just their journey and their experience. And that's actually not working for me whatsoever. So I need to go take the reins into my own hands. Fortunately, because I had no idea what I wanted to build, my twin brother reached out to me and he said, listen, I know you're not doing anything right now. I've happened upon this industry called merchant services, which is a fancy word for credit card processing. And he said, I think you and I should team up and start a brokerage in this industry. It's never been represented before, but it's tried and true in other financial services arenas. And I first laughed at him and said, how dare you insult me like that? There's no way I'm going into that boring industry. But when I stopped, I realized (laughs) at first I had chased the thing that I thought you're supposed to do, which is chase the thing you're passionate about. And then I realized if I could inspect the thing that I would be doing day in and day out, which was talking to business owners and learning about different industries and making my own schedule and helping them with their bottom line, that I could thus get excited about the service itself, as opposed to doing it the other way where it looked cool on paper and was fun to say at cocktail parties, but actually day in and day out was pretty laborious and unexciting. So I said yes. And while 10 years ago, I can look back and, you know, it's 10 years now since we've been in business, I can say, oh, we've grown into 38 states. It's so great. We also had a lot of turmoil. We had two embezzlements. We went back to almost zero in revenue three different times. And it was not easy. I'm very glad we kept with it, but it was definitely not a straight shot. And for me, it's important to say stuff like that. 
because I think we live in a culture that glamorizes entrepreneurship and people aren't talking about the real challenges behind the scenes. So two years into that business, I had a friend from undergrad move back to Atlanta and she said, where do I go to make friends after college? She said, everywhere I go, I'm getting hit on, sold to where everyone's my parents' age. And she's like, I just want to get to know my peers and have a nice time. And if it turns into business, great, but that's not my goal. And I thought, I don't know where that exists. I've never been to that. I've been super entrenched in the networking community with my credit card processing company. I love to connect people. It's actually why I think I'm put on the planet. So I said, why don't I just start it for you? So that was March of 2011. We had 94 people come, 90 of whom were my friends. And they just said, do it again. And people kept saying that month after month to until at a certain point I realized this is a business. People want this. It's making money. And I backed into my second business. So I ran those con- at the same time congruently. Good Lord. Well, what's actually wasn't so bad because I also got really comfortable with the art of delegation at that point and yeah. was able to start building teams and have people support which was really critical, which is probably something I should share more of because (laughs) I definitely couldn't do all of it if it were just me. And then as I watched the economy catapult further and further down, I wanted to do something because I realized I was raised in a way that I thought was the same as everyone else until like most kids, you grow up and you realize, oh, different. Not everyone has the same childhood. And for me, one of those things was that my parents were really diligent in teaching us about financial literacy And when I watched other people struggling, I thought, well, I love to write. People need to learn these things early rather than create bad behaviors and try to fix them as grownups. Why don't I write a kid's book? So I did. It teaches financial education to six to nine-year-olds. And that, I'd say, of all of my journeys has been the least successful. And I'd be happy to talk about more about why and what I learned. But through all of that, about nine years into my entrepreneurial endeavors, I had this deep intuitive knowing that basically said, Dare, you have a new incarnation of your career on the horizon. You better go figure out what it is and do it. How would you know that? I I didn't know. I literally was just like, what? Like I I could just sense that I was feeling finally like I was reaping the fruits of my labor and all of my businesses. And I was kind of on autopilot at that point, which for me is nice for a minute, but then I get kind of antsy anyway. But I kind of felt like, really? I just got here. This has been pretty tumultuous for the past many years. And now I'm actually living this life that I've really wanted. And so it took six months for me to go through a number of exercises, which I'd be happy to delineate. But through those exercises, I came out on the other side, recognizing that the number one question people asked me was, how do you live the life that you do? And when I dug deeper, they said, well, how do you travel 50 to 60% of the time for pleasure? And how do you work wherever you are? And how do you build multiple companies and operate them from anywhere in the world? Or how do you end up in rooms like Davos and TED in the UN or work with famous people? And none of these things were things that I felt like I was doing to make people feel jealous or otherwise. But when they were saying it, I realized they're just looking for that same freedom that I've always valued and designed my life to create. So I thought, this is it. This is the thing that I need to do at this stage of my career, which is accumulate all of the learnings that I've done through seminars and workshops and readings and mentors and everything and bring it together for people so that they have a blueprint instead of having to go seek it all on their own. So that's where you meet me today. Yeah. And I noticed that you are a contributor to Forbes and you've been featured in Inc. and several other publications. And it seems like the common thread with all of your output is one, you're very, very generous with the information. Thank you. But secondly, it seems as if people are looking for tips and tricks. And so you're curating this information from all these incredible sources all these professional sources to make it easier for people to maybe inch over that line of comfort. And I'm curious to know, when you look at the world, I'm interested to know what this looked like for you as a teenager, but also now. Do you look at the world as a world full of opportunity or a world that has things that are broken that you can fix? Like there's something different about the way your brain operates. (laughs) And and I I mean that in in the most most humbled way. But there is something different. And there is something of when you look at something, are are you looking at it from an opportunistic way? way your parents taught you about financial was it this is an opportunity for me to make money what what is the drive yeah for me it's never driven by the money certainly in the early stages when I didn't have the luxury of having a financially sound foundation money was certainly a primary factor in I need to survive 
But once I got to that point, it's very, you know, Maslow's hierarchy or the studies of once you make a certain amount of money on average, 70K a year in most American markets, that there's no additional happiness that comes just from making more money for the sake of it. And I've always been pretty attuned to that, that yes, I've made more money than that, but it's because I have laid out exactly what life I want and I've assigned dollar values to what that costs. So I knew what's my dream life cost. And when I was 23, I did this exercise for a 10-year time horizon and now I'm 35, so that was 12 years ago. And that number was $120,000, which is not insignificant, but it's also not some huge absurd number. And so once I hit that in my 20s, I was like, oh, this is my financial freedom. Like my burn rate is covered on a monthly basis. I'm doing all the things I said that mattered to me and that I value. And now it's for me to choose as opposed to just chasing the dollar blindly, which I think many of us can get caught on the hamster wheel of. And even at times, if I stop thinking about it and I just get caught in, well, more is better then I can get there too. So it's important for me to recalibrate and get back to that why behind it. So for me with the the brain thing, it's not about the money per se. Like even with this avenue I'm going down now, for the first year plus of doing it, I didn't think about making any money on it whatsoever. And a lot of the work I've done, you know, I've been writing for outlets like Forbes and Entrepreneur for five or seven years. And for years, I wasn't getting paid at all. And even when you do, it's kind of like laughable what they pay you. So it's not about that. For me, it's always about seeing the world through a lens of generosity and how do you truly use what your gifts and skills are to help other people. And if everyone's doing that, then we're all up-leveling each other and bettering everyone. And simply just to, I've always just had a hunch and then through my own experiences, anecdotally, I've proven that giving comes back to you. And it's not because you do it to have reciprocity. It's not that you do it because you want something from someone you're trying to extract a transaction. I just know, I call it the karmic retribution of giving, that you put out in the world and it comes back to you. And you don't have to be concerned about how, when, where, or why, but it just does. And even if you're in a place of you know scarcity around your money or whatever your, those fears might be, I've been there too. But you can be generous and it doesn't have to do anything with your money and you can do it in pockets of time that also don't take so much that recenters you to that because I think one of the fallacies we have is that when I get to X place, I'll be happy. And when I get to X place, I'll finally be generous. Yes. But that never happens. Mm-mm. And we start to train ourselves and habituate ourselves to not ever do that. So you have to find ways. Can I share an exercise with you? Please. Cool. So there's this uh, movement, I'll call it, that I accidentally started uh, about two years ago that does this. <laughs> and it's called Give It Forward. And it's this entire premise that there were multiple times I would remember looking back in my career and my life and feeling like I was kind of in a rut or I was stuck or I was feeling kind of down. And I would individually and kind of quietly do this thing that I would do this 30-day challenge and ultimately called it Give It Forward where instead of passively going into my days, finding, happening upon basically times where I could be helpful to someone, I would intentionally instead one go to one person a day for 30 days and say, hey, listen, I'm committed to helping someone with absolutely no strings attached today. I've chosen you. How can I be helpful to you in some way? And often giving them some sort of cue of, you know, what's something that you're challenged with right now or working on or excited about or could use some help with? And I was amazed because so many people come back with things that seem like this giant barrier for them. And all it would take for me is to hear that and be like, oh, I know someone who is good for that or let me suggest this resource. And it can take just a couple minutes in many cases. And it's so powerful to them. So in exchange, I end up feeling great. I feel really then also reassured and refreshed of the fact that I have a lot of things to offer to people as we all do that I'm often sleeping on and taking for granted. And then lastly, the relationships get super deepened because people are realizing, oh, wow, like she went out of her way to do that thing for me. And we all have the capacity to spend a couple minutes a day on a text, an email, or a phone call offering that to someone. That's amazing, by the way. And Rachel had shared with me that you also had a similar exercise. It sounds like you test yourself a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and kind of find different ways. And she had talked about how you spend something like a year of find, writing a journal of finding things that bring you joy. And that's where you directed your life to do more of that. And it was travel and fashion or something. And I find that more and more millennials or even beyond that 
everyone is looking to be more purposeful. And I find there is an agitation with most of the people that I speak with today. So I understand what you're saying of how can you push it forward? I'm wondering, was the house you grew up in, was it nurturing this? Or where where was the turning point where you realized that you could do things a little bit differently than maybe convention had offered to that point? I'm sure that there's something in my upbringing that had to do with this, but it's not explicit. I have an interesting meld of parents where my dad is a, they're both now retired, but he was a financial services executive. My mom was a serial entrepreneur. And so kind of the hybrid is exactly who I am professionally today and where my brain operates. But I I would say that my dad, like people knew me historically really as a sort of like networking guru because a lot of what I would write about was about relationship building and networking. And I absolutely get that from my dad. My dad is the guy who puts the puzzle pieces together of everyone in the world and knows, you know, Allison needs to meet Rachel and Rachel needs to meet Bill and Bill, you know, and on and on and on. And he knows exactly why and he knows how to caress that perfectly. And I learned that by watching him. And I feel very grateful for that because I do think that relationship currency is one of the most valuable and that reputational equity is so important and we often underestimate that. However, later in my life, I think I really struggled as I was a teenager and in college and a young adult because the things that people celebrate and applaud in those ages are the things that I was good at, but I wasn't excellent at. You know, I got straight A's and I was a cheerleading captain and on student government and like decent at my activities, but I was never the one that was getting scholarships for those things or, you know, getting the gold medal of whatever. So I always felt like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, and I also wasn't the person who was born knowing I want to be a doctor or a lawyer, fill in the blank or, you know, the game of life players. I knew those weren't for me either. But then there's this whole world of I don't know what else exists and where do I fit into that unknown? And so it wasn't until after college that I started to realize through another exercise that I started to do, which was I asked about 10 or 20 people who knew me from different capacities in my life, a series of questions that I told them, I can't answer these in return because I can't have there be any fear of, well, if I'm really straight with you, what are you going to say back to me? And there were, I think, nine questions. I published these two and we're happy to share them. Things along the lines of, when do you see me as my most powerful? When am I least powerful? What do you come to me for when the chips are down? What do you wish for me in the next 12 months? And so on. And I would accumulate these from family, friends, coworkers, and start to assess patterns. And one of the things that came out for me was this connector thing that I totally took for granted because I thought everyone has the ability to connect people. That's easy. But I didn't realize because it came easily to me that it didn't necessarily to other people and that people valued that. And that was something that I could build on. So it's those little cues that other people can see in your blind spot that you can't. And it then really catapulted me in a direction. And I still wasn't clear, mind you, because that still doesn't mean I knew what my career was. But it definitely gave me something to grasp onto. Are you an extrovert? No. Well, so depends. <laughs> Technically on Myers-Briggs, I'm an E, but I'm really on the fence. Like I'm truly an ambivert. What is an ambivert? Both. It's I get my <laughs> energy and I get depleted both by being in groups as well as being alone. So I need an equal amount of both. It's interesting because I was thinking about your accolades, the things that you've done. They're so wide ranging. It's weird. <laughs> but it's all Dara Brewstein. It's your name. It's your brand. And I wonder if you are hoping to scale as Dara Brewstein. Do you work better as a collaborator? Because you're a great connector. Thank you. But it sounds like you do so much. There's a lot of output that you as Dara Brewstein puts out. What does that look like for you? And for me, everything is a yes and, right? It's very improv comedy 101. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's yes and that I am definitely understanding now that this, especially in this era we live in, we all operate as a personal brand, whether or not you're intending to build one that People see you online, they see you in your sphere, and that your personal brand goes with you no matter where you go, no matter what title you have, what business you start, what career you say yes to, or if you take yourself off of the career path completely, you still have a personal brand. And so I see myself developing that and paying homage to it and also collaborating where is just or makes sense. So, you know, going into 2019, I wouldn't have guessed that 
in that last few days of 2018, Deepak Chopra reached out and said, let's collaborate and let's How do... How did that come about? So this is a nutty story. I am dying about this story because <laughs> there all there's a whole video series that you have with Deepak right. Chopra. Which is a collaboration. Collaborating. Which was a, a hell yes. Like why? Who's right. going to say no to that? So, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, how does this even happen? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if you had asked me five months ago, I would have been like, that doesn't happen. But then it so happened. So this is brand new. Yeah, it, it came to be December 26, 2018. And I know that wow. because I was so clear about what was going on in that moment. So... The version of the story goes that just about a year ago now, so April 2018, I am probably dating this podcast, (laughs) April 2018, I had a decision that I had made to launch a virtual summit, which is basically an online conference. And that was sort of my coming out party for this life by design, develop your career to fund it, network to support it brand as I'm writing my next book. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make this totally free. It's going to be accessible to anyone, anywhere in the world, as long as they have an internet connection. For me, the message, like we talked about giving and non-monetization, was more important than anything. And as I'm developing it, I had lots of people who had applied and who I had invited to do it because they were my friends, peers, and mentors who had helped get me through this journey. And I realized often our mentors are the people who don't even know us. They're the people whose work we've been studying and paying attention to, and they're a mentor from afar. And so I made a list of those people who were the dreams. You know, it's like the Oprahs and the Brene Browns and the Deepaks. Brene Brown. Yeah, I mean, she it's like my all, girl. all of them. I mean, <laughs> Oprah will always be my number but, one. I mean, <laughs> Oprah's on a Brene ped- pedestal all by herself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so Deepak was on this list among them. And thanks to my network and thanks to, as my friend Jordan Harbinger always says, digging the well before I was thirsty and just being that type of person – My network was very quick to make the right introductions. And so quickly I was introduced to his publicist and I shared the idea with them. It's a married couple. And they said, we love this idea. We're really interested. Who else is doing it naturally? And so I said, Adam Grant's doing it. And this NBA player, me too. He's definite top five. Love him. And yeah, he's an incredible human. And so I'm listing off all of the big names. I'm name dropping. And they're like, great. Who else is doing it? And I was like, shoot, (laughs) that's it. So at this point, I call my friend Rebecca, whom I had met five or six years ago. And when I met her, I didn't know this, but later found through the development of our friendship that she used to be Deepak's COO. So I texted her and I said, listen, Rebecca, I can imagine that this is a really precious relationship for you. If you feel so inclined, here's where I am. If you are open to telling him that I'm legit, that would mean a lot. But honestly, no pressure. Minutes later, I get a screenshot from her of her text message to Deepak. And then about two to three hours later, I had an email from his publicist saying, Deepak's saying, can you be in New York next week to do oh the interview? Oh, my God. So at this point, I'm like, well, I've never interviewed someone in person before. So let me fly to New York and interview Deepak, which was nuts. But so I go. It was great. It was very out of body. And one of those moments where I was like, cherish this. This will never happen again. Yeah. And that was it. Until three months later, I got a call from Chase Bank who said, hey, we want you to be our on-site correspondent for our Atlanta conference, and you're going to interview Cam Newton and Deepak Chopra. Unbelievable. And I just laughed, and I was like, are you kidding? I just interviewed Deepak Chopra. This is so cool. And also, like, I get to be an on-site correspondent. Also had never done that. Is that for the the credit card processing firm? No, Why because Chase we Bank? technically compete. So they're like, you can't talk about that at all. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I think they had just seen some of my videos and some work and like as networks work, someone had given my name to them and they just said, who should we know in Atlanta who can do this? They watched some videos I had had on networking online and they were like, she seems like she won't be a total screw up. So they (laughs) called me and I went and Deepak was so lovely. He remembered me. And from there, his publicist took a liking and they let me interview him three more times that year. So December 26th, why I remember this day, because my boyfriend's family had just left after Christmas. And I thought it's really important that I follow up on top of what I had already followed up after each interaction, letting he and the other high profile folks with whom I collaborated that year know how grateful I was and let them know I was there to support them in the future. I think that's a really critical piece. It wasn't about me wanting anything. It was just simply, hey, I'm here if you need me. 15 minutes later, he had sent an email back that said, I've been reflecting as well. I think you can help me. Of course, my interest has peaked and we start ping-ponging emails, which ended up being the answer of this video series that we launched two weeks later and now have released every single week since. So for me, it really is this tale of have an intention, move in that direction, 
but then stay available to the opportunities and say yes to those that excite you. You have a supreme confidence that not everybody does. I'm going to actually retort that. <laughs> I don't. You don't? No. <laughs> there has to be some type of North Star, though, that drives you. I'm curious to know what that is. It's that I want to live knowing that when I look back from my deathbed, if I have that opportunity, that I knew I gave everything I had in service of what my gifts were to other people. And I don't want to look back and be like, you totally slept on that. You were so lazy. Why did you do that? Yeah. So that does kick me out of the comfort nest a lot more than it might for other people. But here's the... I, I. coined this term I call borrowed confidence. And it's one of the things that I've done to get me over those hurdles when I feel totally underconfident. Because for me, my number one Achilles heel and the thing that always stops me is the inner critic that says you're not good enough. Every single time I enter a new arena or push myself a little bit further out of my comfort zone, it pops up. So there has never been a sphere or space that I've walked into and be like, yeah, I got this. No, I'm always like, no, you don't have this. But borrowed confidence for me is exactly what happened in this Deepak situation where here's this person who could have chosen anyone on the planet to take on this role. And he asked me. So instead of me saying to myself, who are you to do this? You're not good enough. Like, why you? You're going to fall on your face. I thought to myself, "Okay, we need to flip the script and look at the confidence Deepak has in you and borrow that until you can believe that it's real and true for yourself. Take it till you make it. (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) for me, it's just like, let me hold and wear that and borrow it until it feels true and real. So when you met Deep, I think about this because there is a trainer for my company who is, he, I think he's part of the Sikh religion. Mm -hmm. You know, he wears a turban. Mm -hmm. He's very Zen. I think he (laughs) practices Kundalini yoga and he's an amazing sales trainer. And I remember because he works for my company and goes all around the world. He's paid millions of dollars, just this one guy for the company. And I asked him after one of his sessions, I said, doesn't it get boring to do the same thing over and over and over again? He's like, I'm right here. (laughs) And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> All I have is right now. And yeah, I, he's I so always present. wonder what he's so present. He's so present. And I'm like, Ugh, I can't relate to that at all. <laughs> and I wonder if meeting Deepak Chopra, what is it like? Yeah. What is he like? What is the energy like? Yeah, people ask all the time, like, there's no way he's really like he acts like he is. And I was like, no, like, if he wasn't, he'd be so inauthentic and his career never would have risen to the levels that it has. He's exactly what you expect. He's so present. He is so centered. His mind is like a vault. I'll ask him. He never knows what I'm going to ask him. And I usually, we usually record like five to seven things at a time. And his mind, I'll ask him something. And I I asked him this question about leadership once. And he goes into this acronym where he's like, L is for this, E is for that, all the way through all of the letters. And I was like, how did you do that? Like, (laughs) that's not even a common topic that you talk about. He's like, I don't know. I mean, the man has written his 90 books in his lifetime. Unbelievable. And he just is a freak of nature because he is the embodiment of everything that he talks about. And it's funny. I call myself the Deepak Whisperer and the translator because he says things sometimes that I'm like, no one understands what that means. So let me put this in like human terminology. (laughs) What do you feel like you've learned from him? So much. I mean, that's been for me... The number one thing is I get a front row seat with this man and ask him whatever I want. So everything, everything from the first time we met, he said to me, if you are not happy now, you'll never be happy. And that's a mantra I tell myself over and over to stop striving and be more Mm. present. Another was That's a, really a hack. profound. I mean, it sounds so obvious, I but know. it's not because <laughs> we just chase and chase and like think that the happiness is when whatever happens. And it's not. We all know it's not when you get the house, the car, the husband, the wife, the kids, the ring, the clothes, the whatever. It's none of those things. It's it is right now. And like your Sikh sales training friends probably can tell you that the present moment is really all that we have. So the fact that we're often living in the past and the future is why we're so anxious or why we're so stressed. And it's silly. We're we're totally ripping ourselves off of fulfillment and happiness yes. for that reason. And I am not above this. Like I certainly get caught in it all the time. Otherwise, I'd be enlightened and out of here. But, <laughs> but so that was one big thing that he brought to me. Another was for my meditation practice where he said in one of our videos that a hack that he has learned and I 
now have done and it totally works is anytime your mind gets really active in meditation, he will ask himself, I wonder what my next thought will be. And your mind goes completely blank. And then typically I a, few, see that. a few seconds will pass and I'm like, holy shit, my mind went blank. And then I'm like, shoot, I'm thinking again. <laughs> it's this cycle, but it actually works. And so that's been a really cool tool. I mean, frankly, I have spoken to him for so many hours that it's hard to even narrow it down. But just watching him embody what he preaches and be a person who can go out into the world spreading so much goodness with his intention is to give it to billions of people, which is so unfathomable to me and probably most people. It's incredible to just watch him live that and nothing stresses him. He always feels like he's exactly where he needs to be. He's there with generous spirit. Oh, I'll give you this one. This one was really meaningful to me as well. His decision-making principles. I asked him, how do you know when to say yes versus no? Because this is something that comes up all the time for people. And he said, it's really simple. I have a three-pronged framework. He said, if the thing is enjoyable, if the person or people I'm doing it with is fun, and if it's of service to the world. And it has to be all three, and then I'll say yes. Mm. I wouldn't do a lot. <laughs> like, bye, kids. <laughs> no, the kids part is enjoyable. It's other stuff that may not always be. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there's obligation and there's certain things that yeah. aren't always all of those things. But as a general rule of thumb, I think if that's the overarching response, then it's a good framework. So how would you measure success for you? Yeah. So for me, that's critical. I think everyone, a lot of what my work now revolves around is defining that for yourself and making sure that you're deprogramming what other people are telling you success looks like. So for me, success is number one, it's freedom of how I spend my time. Am I able to make the choices of how I choose to spend it? Number one. Number two for me, success is am I learning and growing? Because if I'm not, I feel like I'm depleting and dying. Number three is am I using my gifts and skills full out? Am I being of service? And then it tactically looks like a lot of different things like travel is really important to me. Time with friends is really in my relationship. Like those are all really important to me and art and some creative expression. But those first things are really the values that I make sure everything maps up to. Where do you find you are fully present? I know you love travel mm -hmm. and you have gifts that are identified. And from what I can glean, it's it's networking, it's how to connect. And I think a lot of what I've heard through our conversation today is how can I get out of my body and help somebody else? Totally. I mean, it's the fastest way to get out of your own BS is to serve someone else. Again, it doesn't even have to be a huge ordeal. It can be a small little thing. Often I've found sometimes people just want someone to listen and that can be a really big gift. So yeah, I mean, getting out of your own nonsense and helping other people and not all the time. We're not martyrs. Let's be very clear about that that you can be working diligently on your own stuff and also still not be a jerk and help other people. It's They're not mutually exclusive. But for me, presence comes in a lot of forms. It's in just being mindful throughout the day. Like there are moments I'll stop and I'll go outside and I'll just kind of breathe in the air. Or I'll work from my back porch because I want to be taking in those sounds and whatever. It's my meditation practice. It's you know trying to be fully present in the moment that I'm in. And not feeling anxious, like, oh, I should be there. What happened before? And that's not always easy. You know, I came in here and I got an annoying email from a publicist at Penguin Random House who, you know, was annoying me about something. And and that takes me out of moments. But then I have to quickly realize, like, why are you allowing that to take you off of your, you know, your spot? And is it really worth it? So those are some. And then, you know, sometimes cooking or painting or for me, photography. I'm a black and white photographer, there's all these little things that can bring me back there and definitely travel. I think when you're out of your comfort zone physically where you don't know where anything is and you, the sights and smells and everything are unique, it is very easy to get in that spot in that moment, which is so, so enjoyable. Where's your favorite place that you've traveled That's to? That's like the hardest question you've asked me. And <laughs> and where is the place you have never been, but that you're dying to go? Whew, that's easier. So, Well, this is kind of hilarious and sad. So I'm supposed to go to Cuba soon, but now with some administrative issues, I don't know if we're going to be able to mm, go. Yeah. But so I've been dying to go there. But the other places I've been dying to go are Zanzibar and South Africa. So hoping to get there soon. And then... My favorites are tough. I was, as I mentioned, an Italian major. And so Italy is one of my all-time favorite places, the food, the people, the everything. And just the diversity of culture and topography and everything in that country is so amazing. Bali is absolutely at the top of my list. I love Israel. I mean, 
there truly isn't a place I've been that I'm like, I would never go back there. There's certainly a couple like Bosnia was not at the top of my list. Malaysia was not at the top of my list, but like I'm typically like pretty into wherever I am. And you live in Atlanta. Yes. Do you have aspirations to live somewhere else? No, I love or Atlanta. Or have more than one residence. So a long time ago when I was goaling out my life, I was like, oh, I want to have four residences. I want to have Atlanta, Italy, San Francisco, and New York. And then I realized, oh, Airbnb is a thing now. And it's actually kind of nice not to have all of that stress and overhead. So for me, I love Atlanta as a home base. I mean, you might be this way too, that our airport is the best. It is amazing. <laughs> we get direct flights on Delta just about everywhere. So Atlanta, for so many reasons, but that being one of them, has been such a great home base. I actually moved my partner, Brendan, from Brooklyn here and sold him on Atlanta because Atlanta is such a cool spot to be. And so I don't intend to move. Been here 17 years. But that being said, let's see what happens. It's so funny because I've been here 19 years. I feel like everybody moved right here, right around 2000. Mm -hmm. My husband as well. And we didn't know each other back then. So oh, cool. it's kind of fun how that is. What kind of kid were you in high school? Like if, if you're the people were going to classify you that Dara is this kind of person. I fit into a lot of buckets. I hate like categories and like contextualization even though I understand our brains require them and I was totally that category breaker where I was like in the popular group and like partying all the time on the weekends but then I was in all of the AP classes and straight A student and then I was the cheerleading captain and then I was like with all the like religious kids that's like the perfect mix though. I was like doing all of them at the same time <laughs> I'm so curious about your religious pursuits, not religious pursuits, but um, yeah. religion as as a major. And I am thinking of doing, I should probably tell you because you're the networking queen, but <laughs> I'm thinking of doing a series within this podcast to interview pastors of all kinds. That's cool. Because I could sit in any church and I have a lot of questions and a lot of cases Religion is very frustrating to me and can make me very upset over certain for a lot of different reasons. But you can put me in any church and I am transfixed because mm. how a pastor can move a congregation or a community yeah. or a group of people. So it's not even so much their message, but how they yes, communicate. their public speaking and motivational speaking methods yeah. is really powerful. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you are still very interested in religion or pursue that? So for me, I got really, I grew up Jewish, but very unpracticing. We were pretty lazy about it. <laughs> and <laughs> in high school, I went to a 2000 person public school in Baltimore for high school. And my twin brother and I were two of four Jewish people there. So we were not surrounded by it at that stage of our lives. And almost everyone was some version or another of Christianity or Catholicism. So I found myself in a lot of churches and a lot of youth groups just by proxy of that's where people were, or I would have a sleepover and end up there with someone's family the next day. And so it got my eyes really opened to other belief systems so that when I went into college, I was fascinated by what made people tick in that capacity. So when I studied religion from a world religion perspective, I did it solely from the vantage point of if you can understand what people believe, even lack of belief of you know being agnostic or atheist is a belief. So I thought if you can understand that, then you can really understand people and that that would serve me well no matter what I did. And so I did that. And then after graduating, you know, I continued to explore my own life, different religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs and have continued to go on that journey of figuring out like what really works for me and trying different things on over time. So while again, like I'm not so great at putting myself in a bucket, the word religious can be a little off putting for me. And it's so millennial, like, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. <laughs> it's, it's exactly what it's been that I consider myself very spiritually open and universalistic. And, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to one religion. I wonder how that, how do your parents feel about that? They've had different reactions. My mom has always been like, I don't care as long as you believe something. That's great. Uh, whereas my dad has always been what I'd consider culturally Jewish, but not religiously. And... I think that's how, you know, statistically most Jews are, but he doesn't see it that way. Even though he is an atheist Jew, he doesn't see that they're separable. So he sees himself as all in, even though he doesn't practice or go to temple. 
So for him, it felt very much a betrayal. He felt like, how dare you consider other things? We're Jewish. And for me, it's not that I'm just denouncing it. Like I still am Jewish. That is in my blood. And, you know, I go to Israel and love that. And we have Shabbat dinners at my house with my Irish Catholic boyfriend. <laughs> like <laughs> It's for me, it's the traditions and it's the connectivity to that and the gathering a lot of the time, which I obviously relate to. But it doesn't have to be me speaking Hebrew, which I don't. Or it doesn't have to be me having a bat mitzvah, which I didn't. Or me practicing all the holidays and celebrating them, which I don't. So so did you ever feel like when you were one of four, you and your brother were two of four Jewish people, did you ever feel like you didn't fit in or were trying to figure out? Because by nature, you're going to try and put yourself in a box there. Yeah, totally. I definitely felt like an outsider in that way. Like people, our friends, they were never malicious, but you know, they make a lot of jokes and about it, like Jewish jokes of any nature. And, you know, it just felt like we were kind of outsidery in that way, even though it wasn't some huge distinction because it wasn't something that, you know, we weren't wearing religious garb or we weren't deeply practicing. But yeah, I think that was what oftentimes had me interested in pursuing going to some of these youth group things with people to understand what's drawing you to that. I don't feel drawn in a way that you seem to. And so I was curious. And honestly, the language thing had a lot to do with it, that when you go to synagogue, unless it's a reform temple, which is the least traditional, it's in Hebrew. <laughs> I stopped going to Hebrew school in fifth grade when we moved. And so I don't speak Hebrew much at all except the prayers. And so it was a lot easier to understand what religions in English were saying to me. Yeah, that's got to be interesting, too. My father is from Lebanon. And, you know, we've gone to churches that are in completely in Arabic. And to me, I felt I felt like it was amazing. I mm -hmm. felt connected. I had no idea what they were saying. But I was next to my father and next to my uncle and everything. And they were so proud. I don't yeah. even know what was going on, but it felt so connected. That's amazing. In that way. And I'm always curious to know when people feel like they are marginalized, marginalized in some way, or even stereotyped, because that's how we categorize and organize things yes. so we can quickly move on because we are so flooded with information all the time. It's hard. Totally. It's really hard to just be open, open, open. Yeah. And I, I say that understanding that my brain does the exact same thing yeah. and I ask the same questions, but yet I'm so opposed to fitting in them myself. <laughs> so. so having said that, what is the mission that you're hoping to accomplish if you're going to be reaching out? What is like a, I don't mean to say utopian state because that's a really stupid question, but <laughs> If your mission were to be, what what does that look like? Where do you feel like you can make the most impact? Yeah, for me, it really is about how do I help people who feel underfulfilled or unfulfilled or stuck in a rut or looking for purpose or, you know, just to feel more aligned in their life and not like they're chasing other people's dreams that they've just gotten in the driver's seat of their own car. Helping them kind of shake, shake themselves a little bit and be like, oh, here's some tools for me to figure out what I actually want and start moving in that direction with a lot less fear. And I think so much of that is just seeing it modeled and having people kind of saddle up beside you. And while I'm not a coach and I don't do it one-on-one -on -one for people, I think just seeing that there's a community of people, whether it's just through my Instagram or through the articles that I write who are doing this too, and mm. this is how they did it. And here's both the inspiration as well as the activation of it. I think both are important then that is what I'm really excited about doing. How has the response been? It's been really touching. I mean, I will say there are trolls and some of them are unkind, but the gross majority are wonderful. And they send me beautiful messages talking about, you know, hearing this or seeing this from what you're doing has inspired the following chain reaction. And at the end of the day, like everyone wants to have a meaningful life. And if you can help catalyze that for someone at any stage of their journey, that's really powerful. And truly one of the most surprising things has been that I just assumed people who would gravitate towards this would be young people because they're in the early stages of their life and career mm -hmm. and they're trying to figure it out. But I've been amazed that it's everything from teenagers to people who have retired who were like, I'm finally realizing that I pushed the ball down the field for so long, holding off on what I really cared about. And now is my last go at this and I'm really motivated and I need the tools and resources to do it. That it's amazing. I mean, these people have two and three times the amount of life behind them that I do, yet they're turning to me for this. And that feels like a responsibility that I want to take seriously. How do you engage with, with the people that are following you? 
I read every email and every comment. So, you know, it's the Instagram DMs, it's the Instagram comments, it's the emails from my email list, it's the emails from my new or my website. I read everyone and I respond to all of them that are not really rude, <laughs> which again is not no that trolls. Many. Yeah, I mean, do you block them or do you respond? It ever? depends. Uh, it depends. You if, have to probably, if they're agitated enough, you probably are like, you know. I, I will say there's moments where I did the wrong thing and I would respond and not even like a, knee-jerk defensive way just uh well this is actually my perspective but then I just realized I'm just fueling their fire and it's useless I mean there was one person who wrote me an email probably took them about 20 minutes it was so long that they had read line by line my bio on my website and were picking apart every single line and hating on it down to my cat's name and that I have it and I was just like wow like that was dedicated and if only you had repurposed that into something useful but in moments like that I realized that you can either just write thank you for your feedback or you can just not respond yeah. and that there is no really winning in a case like that. You're not going to convert them. It doesn't matter. I do think it's a hard, it's a hard battle for everybody, people that are in the public eye or not that you have the, you know, like Brene Brown says, the cheap seats, the people that are <laughs> not really out in the field fighting, but they are tearing other people down and it, it kind of invites the conversation over mental health of why somebody would want to do that or even just nurturing that. And I wonder if that crosses your mind as it's kind of not your, it's certainly not your problem, but I also think it's a problem to solve or a problem that needs to be solved of, of why, why are people so hurt and broken? Yep. And it, for me, I feel like that, that is, um, that's something I would love to address and see how, you know, if there's a way, if I can contribute, what would that look like? And the only things I can think about are my two kids. <laughs> but that's where it starts. I'll try right? them that, screw them up as least as possible. I think that's so important. It's people think about making an impact as this global scale or some huge community when really we all can make an impact on the sphere of influence that we already have. And maybe that'll cascade and maybe it won't. And maybe you don't want it to. But one person that you impact has a ripple effect. And that is powerful. It's when you impact no one and you're just being that troll and the person in the cheap seats and that's all you're doing. That's when it's not helping anyone. But we all have the ability to impact someone in our sphere of influence positively. Besides Deepak Chopra, who are your favorite <laughs> people that you've been able to connect with through just the way that you connect through your network? So if we're talking like name dropping names, then it's it's folks that I've interviewed. It so doesn't have to be name dropping, but people that are just influenced, just change your know. life, right? Well, Adam Grant is definitely one of them. His work for me was the scientific evidence to what I knew anecdotally. Just to pause for a second, Adam Grant Grant is an organizational (laughs) psychologist. He's one of the top TED Talk speakers and has a a show, a podcast. He's a a writer and a Harvard professor. He's at... um, Wharton Yale? at Penn. Somewhere really, yeah. really yeah, he's smart. A business professor. <laughs> he's the youngest tenured professor ever at Penn. And he, he was in his 20s when that happened. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. He also happens to be like a springboard champion and a magician. Like he's just this cool <laughs> dude with four kids and a wife. And his work is incredible. And when I read his first book, he's written three or four now called Give and Take. And it put evidence to the fact that givers win in the world as long as they're not martyrs, as opposed to matchers or takers. That was so freeing for me because I felt like, wow, someone actually studied this thing that I've believed and acted on for so long. And so connecting with him and having him in the summit and just becoming friendly with him has been so meaningful because it also demonstrated for me that this all is true, that he reached out to me recently about one of his podcast episodes and he said, you know, who's someone that you like really wanted to meet and how did it come about? And I was like, well, honestly, it was you. And it all came about because a girl I went to undergrad with was in your graduate class and she saw my give it forward movement and thought this is so up Adam's alley. Have you ever connected with him? And I was like, no, but I would love to. And she introduced us. And here we are now. And it's these little things that none of that was designed to get me connected to Adam Grant. But then we got connected and I was like, whoa, this is the exact embodiment of everything he and I preach coming to fruition together. Where do you go from here? (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Well, ironically, coming into this year, unlike every year historically, I said my only goal was to have less goals. 
I wanted to let things unfold a little more I naturally. love this. So, I love this so because TBD. It, you what and the reason why I asked that is because you said in your 20s that you had made your goals and figured out all of these other things of where am I going to be and you figured out your cash flow and what that's going to look like and it sounds like you're actually peeling that back and saying I need to let just let go of all of that and see where the the world takes me yeah. and I, I feel like we put, as Americans, we put such a high price on productivity that from the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed, we're completely scheduled and we don't have any time to process anything that happens, let alone the bullshit that comes in outside yeah. of what you've scheduled and dealing with emotional stuff that you just keep rolling on that train. Yeah. The margins so I, are I get so that. important in oh, your calendar. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, it's like, I still believe that it's important to know where your destination that you want is and that you can delineate that and you can put the price tags on it and know what you need to make. And you can also go with the flow. And instead of fighting against the current when you just say, oh, well, I've committed to doing that thing. So I'm going to get there. Come hell or high water. I'm going to white knuckle it. That you can also say that can be mutable and it can change and that's okay, which I wasn't good at earlier in my life. Now I'm in this place where I still have a destination mind. I'm still writing my book. I still want it to be a New York Times bestseller. I still have visions and dreams, but I'm not as beholden to the way that they play out anymore. Or even I'm very comfortable with if those don't happen or work, that's okay because at least the journey that I was on to get me there opened the door to whatever the other thing was. What is your new book called? Does it have a title? I don't know yet. I'm still, (laughs) book publishing is nuts. So (laughs) I've been writing the proposal for the last year. I thought I was done in October until my agent told me I was very mistaken. <laughs> the working title right now is Life by Design, Not by Default, which was also the name Your of program. the summit. Yeah. Right. Um, but who knows? I know Adam told me this when he, after he finished Give and Take, he said, oh, I thought my book was like so good. And he's like, and actually the, the agents and the publishers told me, your proposal, we actually just want this one sliver of which turned into give and take. And so who knows? <laughs> we'll see. Isn't that crazy? So how can people get a hold of you? What is the best? Well, let me ask two parts. One is how can people get a hold of you? And if you were to give one way to help others free themselves or at least get take a step closer, what would that look like? Take take a step closer to their own purpose. What would that look like? Cool. So there's answer is a twofer. So <laughs> My question was a two first, so yes, touche. Perfect. So, <laughs> well, it's one and the same for me. It's on my website, I have a ton of free resources. And there are four free resources in particular that are all great first steps for people to move in this direction. And your website is Dara. Dara.co. So it's oh. D A R R A H.co. Super simple. And on there, the one that you might want to start with is the free masterclass with Deepak Chopra and myself that has a guided meditation in it as well. And it's on living a more meaningful life. So that's a great starting point. There's also three other freebies on there in addition to a jillion and one articles from high profile people and otherwise of all of these types of things. Those are on goal setting, on the shit no one tells you about starting a business and on the best icebreaker questions to really develop better relationships. I've used that, by the way, in Toastmasters. And? Because we have table (laughs) topics. They're great questions. I like how they have degrees. Yeah, mild, medium, and hot. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like you don't always want to start with hot if you're not in the right company. But (laughs) mild might be too mild if you're in another company. So Yeah. But yeah, so those are all there. Great things to start with to get you on this journey very effortlessly. Uh, You can also find me through there if you want to be in touch. And then I'm also prolific on Instagram. Every day I show up and try to share something of value. And there it's at Dara B. That is awesome. Thank you so much, Dara. I'm so glad you could stop by. This was so fun. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Dara Brewstein. I felt like I learned so much. And I hope you did too. If you want to connect with her, you can find her at Dara.co. Dara is spelled D-A-R-R-A-H. And on the socials, you can find her at Dara B, B for Brewstein, Dara B on the socials. If you feel like you got value from today's chat, please subscribe, rate, review, and tell a friend. Thanks so much for listening.